Don't let a DUI charge ruin your life. Get a professional and confidential evaluation from our experienced team at True Heights Treatment. Our evaluations are accepted by the majority of courts in the state of Illinois and provide a comprehensive assessment of your substance use patterns and potential treatment needs. Get the help you need today and start your path to a brighter future. Contact us now to schedule your evaluation at 708-248-7039 or at thtdui.com. The George Brassy Podcast is made possible with funding provided from Brassy Global Strategies, LLC, a leading political consulting, public policy, government affairs, and research firm. Are you interested in running for elected office? Need advice? Call or email George, 708-769-5015. Brassy Global Strategies 1 at gmail.com. I'm so glad to welcome Professor Louis Corsino to the podcast. Louis is a uh, professor of sociology at North Central College um, in Naperville, Illinois. Louis, thanks for coming on. Uh, George, I appreciate all, all that you do for Chicago Heights <laughs> and then asking me to, to join you. Before we get into the book that you wrote about uh, Chicago Heights and the Neighborhood Outfit, can you tell us a little bit about your journey in becoming a professor and what interested you in sociology and what is sociology? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I started out, you know, I grew up in Chicago Heights and, um, uh, and went to uh, Notre Dame as an undergraduate. Um, and it was a big leap for me to go from Chicago Heights, Notre Dame, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I took a sociology course, and it was one of, one of the courses that I was doing halfway well in. And uh, over a period of time, I decided, well, maybe I should stick with sociology. And uh, um, and then once I got a, a BA in sociology, then I, I think I decided maybe I'd go to grad school and then I got an MA and a PhD in sociology. And it's sort of a, the, the, the movement into sociology was sort of never planned. Uh, um, it was um, incremental. And over a period of time, uh, woke up one day and obviously with some work involved, um, got a PhD in sociology and then sort of pursued an academic career and a research career. So it was not a, it was not a passion I had. Who, who grows up as a who goes up trying to be a sociologist, right? Uh, but it sort of happened that way. Um, and um, um, and the sociology is, uh, is, it becomes a part of me, the way I look at the world. And, and one of the, I guess, the key ideas to sociology is to see that my own life and my own experiences, and hopefully the students too, that one of the experiences are, are a combination of my own biography, my own history, my own desires, my own decisions. But it's also have to see those decisions within a larger social context. Um, and so once you start to see that the decisions that you make are contoured in some ways by the larger social factors and realities that are out there, when you see the connection between your own experiences and decisions and how those larger social things sort of contour or shape those, then then you have the sociology. That's what sociology is. And so growing up in Chicago Heights, I, 
you know, was conjured by, you know, a sort of blue collar community, you know, a lot of Italian community. Um, and that affected who I was and decisions that I made and the like. So I try to convey that uh, to the students I have in the class that there, we always make personal decisions and have to take responsibility for them. But some of those decisions have been not, not preset, but some of those decisions have been modified by the, the, the context in which you which you grew up and, and which you experience now. So that's, that's in essence, was I, they call it the sociological imagination to see both, both factors, individual decisions and the larger social context as combining to sort of make the decisions that we make. Does that make, does that make sense? It sure does, Lou. What was that um, transition like to go from Chicago Heights to South Bend as a 18, 19 year old? Well, it was, it, it was tough because I you know, I'd never hardly been away from home. And so to this sort of academic environment, and it was a difficult, it was a difficult sort of transition um, to move from, from, you know, the, the, the Chicago Heights context, especially as I wrote about in my book, sort of growing up in that sort of, you know, the, the, the Chicago Heights and part of connected to a little bit organized crime. Um, so that connection then to go to an academic institution, it was, it was a difficult transition. And I think uh, one of the, I think you asked, um, you know, that had an influence on my life was there was a book written a number of years ago called Street Corner Society. And it was a sociologist studied the Italian section of the North End of Boston. And when I, when I took the sociology course and read that book, it was interesting because it was for the first time I could see myself in, I could see my experiences in this academic sort of world. Um, and so that sort of lit in some ways a, a spark in me to sort of un- try to understand how my own experiences were in, in part uh, my decisions, but in part let me, let me see the context in which I grew up in and how that influenced me. Um, so it was, a, um, it, it was not an easy transition for me. Uh, going into that 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 sort of that leap I had leap I had to make. Lou, where where do you go to high school at? Bloom. I went to Bloom. I went to uh, four years at Bloom. Um, I graduated in 1966. Um, uh, so I went to Bloom for four years, and when it was all you know, uh, when it was all all one school at a particular time, um, it was and it was a great school. I mean, it was diverse and. Uh, and great teachers, and I really enjoyed the experience, yeah, at Bloom. And at that time, the Chicago Heights experience was like what? What do you remember about living through the 1960s as a teenager in Chicago? No, I, and I think, George, you're a little, you're younger than I, and, um, um, the, but Chicago Heights was almost like your, your, your um, small town, industrial small town, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Fourth of July parades down in the center of Halsey Street. Uh, um, you know, the Ford plant was built. Uh, you know, around on that time, it was, it was a, it was a good time to grow up. It was a good in the fifties and sixties. Was a good time to grow up because uh, Chicago Heights was growing and developing, and there was a lot of resources, um, and and a lot of, um, and partly, obviously, it had some problems too. Uh, there was. There were issues, racial issues, and the like. But it was a, it was a. I, I'm glad I grew up when I did uh, in Chicago Heights uh, dur- during that period of time. 
it was a uh, since since that time, I know Chicago Heights has gone up and down in terms of losing some of the industrial base and the like. But when I grew up, it was uh, uh, it was uh, what they call it. Chicago Heights was the best manufacturing town of its size uh, in the country. That was the slogan on the uh, on the on the on the, uh, on the stickers, the, the vehicle stickers. It, it was it was a good time to grow up. I often tell people that the the story of Chicago Heights is often the story of America. I mean. <sighs> From the beginning to where we're at now. You, you know, that's funny because I, I, and some of the things that I've written about is that um, the things that defined America at the beginning of the 19th century was this notion of urbanizations, you know, that the city, uh, the country was becoming more urban. It was becoming more an immigrant area. Um, um, it, w- it was growing. And that was Chicago Heights. It was became, increasingly was urbanized. It was industrialized. It was becoming more uh, of an immigrant enclave, a whole variety of different sort of immigrants, Polish, Lithuanian, Italian, um, and the like. And so it characterized the early part of the er, 1900s up until, you know, through the century. On the other hand, in the last, what, 20 years, uh, Chicago Heights has characterized some of America too, in that it's been deindustrialized and it's, it's had some other particular issues um, so it, it, in some ways, I think it's a great case study. Uh, maybe, maybe this is to your point. It's a great case study of, of America from 1900s on, on, on to today. I think, I think you're, I think you're accurate in terms of characterizing it as, as, a t- as America. Lou, so you, you end up completing your MA and PhD, uh-huh. become a professor. Yeah. Uh, What's that experience like once you're actually the professor and you're leading the classroom? What's that like for you? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, obviously, uh, even even to this day, it's so many. I think I'm, I still think they're going to find me out that, <laughs> that I don't really belong there. You know, it's that the whole idea is that, uh, you know, uh, why why am I a professor and why do I get to stand up and talk to these these students if they, if they listen about uh, particular experiences? Um, but it, it's a wonderful um, way of living a life. I mean, I, I really, in the best of days, I've had an impact. Uh, some days not, some days I'm good, some days I'm not so good. But in the best of days, I've had an impact on students. And it's, um, it, it's um, uh, I guess that what I, what I like best about the job is that it, it allows a good deal of individual freedom um, I'm not on a set schedule. I mean, I have obligations requirements in terms of writing and all and teaching and other sort of service work for the, the school. But what I like best about it is that it allowed me a great deal of flexibility uh, going forward in terms of living, living, living my life. I remember one time I was in Chicago Heights and we were driving around with my, my father and a friend, a couple other guys. And one of the guys worked at uh, uh, the Ford uh, Ford Motor Company, and and he was he'd been there for 25 years, and he was saying how you know he got for because the unions were strong, he got like six weeks off. Uh, you know he didn't have to work, uh, and I thought, wow, that's cool <laughs> to to get six week off. Uh, but then um, but then he had to go back to work, and working in the Ford plant wasn't always the best. But I always thought that my job provided me this where I never wanted to really, you know, uh, uh, distance myself from the work because I embraced it in a particular way. 
Um, so it was, it, it, it's been a rewarding life. Uh, it's ups and downs. We were, I, I, I moved around a lot. I taught early on in my career. I taught California, Santa Cruz, Riverside, University of Hawaii a couple of years. Uh, I had to move around a lot to sort of find my position, uh, to find a, my niche. So I lived away from Chicago Heights for 20 years, something like that. Eventually came back this way because of family and uh, ended up at North Central for about 20 years now. And so it's, it's been a, it's, it's been a rich um, experience for me. Lou, before we get into your book, you um, wrote the foreword for another book by Charlie Hager and David Miller. Right. Uh, right. And they are former guests of this podcast. Can you talk oh, a right. bit about, uh, you know, writing that forward and what you thought of that book? Um, it, it, it's funny because the book that I wrote was more or less talking about the experiences in the, uh, well, from 1930s to about the 1960s, the, the outfit and organized crime. And um, um, that book, um, Hager's book, talks more or less about uh, afterwards, about the 70s and 80s. And, and, and in some ways, it talks about the, the demise of organized crime uh, in, in the Heights. Uh, and Italian character assistant of organized crime. Because it, it was that in the 70s and 80s, um, the, 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 the resources that allowed organized crime to prosper, be that as it may, um, were, um, uh, were uh, dissipating. Uh, that is, um, you know, they're no longer jukeboxes pretty much, you know, in the 80s and 90s, which my father worked. Uh, jukeboxes weren't there. Uh, uh, gambling was um, uh, now more ubiquitous rather than going into the back room at some bar. Um, there, there was just, uh, and certainly uh, uh, it, it was a different era. So that book, I thought, um, was a nice compliment to some, or maybe mine's a compliment to that book, uh, to uh, putting them together, I think, tells a, a, a more complete story of how organized crime in Chicago Heights matured over, a, over basically 100 years. Um, so... I appreciated um, that book. So it was an interesting read on my part. I mean, and the fact that um, I forgot, was it Hager, the guy, the guy who wrote it, he wasn't Italian. He got into the organized crime and he wasn't Italian. That in of itself speaks of how organized crime had changed and was, was reaching out to different groups because they no longer could recruit the, the sort of Italian sort of people into organized crime as they did for many years in Chicago Heights. Lou, what leads you to writing the neighborhood outfit organized crime in Chicago Heights? Well, uh, um, George, I, uh, you know, growing up, growing up in Chicago Heights and growing up in that sort of environment, I, my father wasn't heavily involved in it. He worked for the outfit. But he wasn't he wasn't involved in the real heavy stuff of the outfit. Growing up in that growing up in that environment, um, uh, there was always the idea that my father worked in something that was that you didn't talk about mysterious. Uh, never talked about it in the family. Though we had the house, you know, that were unusual friends and, you know, good people, but unusual people. Um, and, and we never, so I, I never, I never 
thought it was unusual to have these types of people come into the house. It was only when I went away to college and only when I went away and got outside of the sort of circle of Chicago Heights, at least where, where I grew up anyway, that, uh, that this was an unusual set of experiences. And so I, I started to look back at my experiences once I had the platform to get out of Chicago Heights and saw it as, as more unique than I thought originally. And so that led me to sort of um, uh, explore how organized crime, especially among Italians, emerged when it did. And, and, and the, the assumption had always been, I think, that, that organized crime was composed of a bunch of goons and thugs and, and hoodlums and all that sort of bad apples. And there certainly are those people in organized crime, Italian organized crime too. But the people that I interacted with or my family interacted with were not that. Um, they were not, they were family people. They were, we'd go over to people's house and have coffee with them. And, and so it made me sort of look, look more um, critically at how do you explain organized crime when my father and friends were involved in it, but they weren't, they weren't the sort of um, despicable people pictured a lot in the organized crime sort of literature. And so that, that disjuncture between what I saw and what, what traditionally people describe organized crime, especially Italian organized crime, that, that distinction between the two prompted me in some ways to, to look at why did, why did it emerge among this group of people who were not criminals, died in the wool criminals. They were normal people who got into criminal activity. And so trying to explain that dichotomy uh, was the thing that sort of, uh, if that makes sense. What, what do you think um, was the reason that people back then would be involved with organized crime? Well, I think, I think in some ways it's the same reason that um, people get in organized crime today. They wanted to get ahead. Uh, and, and as I say a little bit in the book, that there was a good deal of discrimination against Italians and other groups too, certainly, against uh, Italians early on in the, um, uh, much, much of the early part of the uh, uh, 20th century, a good deal of discrimination. I try to I try to identify. There's cultural discrimination. Italians couldn't be on, couldn't live on certain parts of Chicago Heights. There was economic discrimination. Italians were discriminated in terms of jobs. There was political discrimination. There were no Italians on the you know in the city council for you know for almost half a century. Um, so there was a good deal of discrimination, and 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 structures that this larger context I talked about in sociology, a good deal of structures, which made it difficult for the typical Italian to be successful. I mean, there were success stories, certainly, but the typical Italian wasn't successful. And so looking around and you're trying to raise a family, how do you become successful? Well, you could go, you could join a labor organization. You could try to get, you know, try to change things by joining labor unions, which a lot of Italians did. You can join mutual aid societies, which Italians do to try to provide for each other. Certainly the Calabresi societies, uh, uh, Marcogiani society in Chicago Heights did that. You could start your own businesses. Uh, a lot of Italians did that. A lot of Italians did barber shops and tailor shops and, and you know, uh, uh, automobile stations. You could do that. But another way of sort of making it, becoming successful, was to engage, a fourth way of making being it was to engage in this form of organized crime. I mean, not the, not the, you know, the heavy stuff, but, you know, simply being the, the ones who collected the money 
you know, for the gambling, the ones who, you know, who knew things, but they just found a way to be successful and provide for the families by engaging in the more, uh, I shouldn't say acceptable, but the, the, the less nefarious parts of organized crime. So I think, I think trying to have a sense of mobility and provide for their families was one of the motivations that allowed some people to engage in organized crime. Others did it by, you know, joining labor unions. It was one of the that some people were successful at least provide for their families. I, I know my grandfather, for example, made, uh, you know, with a phone group in Chicago. And I went during the Depression, and they said, you know, we'll give you 75 hours a week um, if you help us make moonshine. And so my grandfather and other people made moonshine for 75 hours a week during the Depression. I mean, that was my father. My grandfather, you know, had didn't, didn't have a high school education, didn't have – that was – wasn't like motivated to engage in crime with this criminal intent. He saw it as a job. So I, I, I think in some ways that explains it and explains how people get an organized crime today. So a lot of it is social mobility. Yeah. I think in American society, in order to make it, you know, you need, and that's why a lot of immigrants, a lot of immigrants come over here with social mobility. They get here. And they find out, you know, that the mobility that was sort of promised them uh, was not as easy as they thought. And they struggled for a long period of time that they looked for different avenues to sort of change. And some, like I said, some engage in labor organizing. There's this history of that in Chicago Heights where the Italians and other groups try to change the conditions in the factories to increase wages. And they did that. But some, some moved, some move into this organized crime. And not, not not with the intent to go out and shoot up people. That, that's, that's, that was pretty rare. Uh, it happened, but it was pretty rare. Most just wonder about it as a job. Uh, that's why. So I think most mobility was an important factor. When you think about some of the players outside of Al Capone in this, this era, who are they and who did you find very interesting uh, when you were writing your book? Characters, in, I, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to look at Lucy's book, uh, the Forgotten Another Boys, former guest of the podcast. Yeah, well, uh, I have gotten together a couple times, and and Lucy sort of identified just like Dominic Roberto and and John Roberto, and uh, um, they were again these these aren't these are people that you know did some nefarious. I don't want to I don't want to put them out on the okay, yeah. but brilliant and. In terms of organizing, an organi- they were brilliant in terms of putting together an organization that managed to be successful for close to 70, 80 years, despite the fact that they had to fight not only other competition, other organized crime groups, and they had to fight the, uh, the legit FBI and the like. And so, uh, as as you know, as 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 difficult as it is to say that these people were, um, you know, models in terms of leadership skills, the Robertos and the uh, Frank Laports. I don't know if they, these names are well, Frank Laports 
Al Palados. Uh, they, they, they did some you know, hard stuff, but they also were very skilled at what they did. If, you, if you're going to study leadership and, and don't, don't put a moral basis on it, which we should, but if you're going to study leadership, I think studying some of these people would be a, an interesting take on how you become a leader um, in particular ways. And one of the people often associated with leadership in the outfit and Chicago Whites is the infamous Al Capone. Can you speak a little bit about him and what his role in everything was? Yeah, I, I think in, what, what I try to do a little bit in my book, though, I, my, Al Capone, you know, would visit Chicago Heights for a number of number of times. It was sort of an enclave for him at the time. Remember, in the 19, no, 1920s, up until the 30s before he got put away, uh, Chicago Heights was a far enough distance from Chicago in terms of uh, the distance stayed the same, but the, it would take more of an hour and a half to get down here from Chicago. And so Chicago Heights with his Italian enclave was a respite in some ways. So Capone could, you know, get away from Chicago. So he would come down to Chicago Heights. And uh, there's a lot of stories about Capone, you know, at San Rocco and, you know, and, and he would come to my grandmother's house a couple of times. So he was, uh, um, he was uh, obviously a, um, pretty brilliant in what he did. And again, again, I don't want to throw, I don't want to dismiss the fact that he also was, could be pretty brutal uh, at the same time. So Capone played a role, but I think what, what, what to me was the important feature of his, is that Capone and his organization provided what do we call social capital? That is by, by when the Chicago Heights group connected with and and made an association with Capone, what they got from Capone was new techniques for dealing with organized crime. They got muscle in terms of dealing with some of the fractions in Chicago Heights. And so Capone and the Chicago Heights group engaged in a symbiotic relationship with each other. Chicago Heights became almost the, 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 um, this, the some people argue that the center for uh, um, during the Prohibition era, became the center for uh, the Midwest for distribution of illegal alcohol. So Capone used Chicago Heights, but Chicago Heights used Capone's muscle and and ways of dealing with things to to gain control in the Heights themselves. There was this connection between the two. You know, I, I if you know, you know, Elliot Ness. Uh, you know, um, uh, one of his first one of Elliot Ness's first jobs was uh, in Chicago Heights, and uh, and uh, 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 Elliot Ness said, you know, Chicago Heights was at, at the center of, of, of organized crime in the United States. And I think it was because Capone and Chicago Heights groups, they formed this sort of connection between the two. Interesting. I never knew that about uh, Ness's connection to the city. Yeah, yeah. That's where he that's where he started his first his uh, his first field assignment was in Chicago Heights, and he arrested some people. You know, like yeah, though he he got out, he got he was transferred before, um, and you know Capone Capone became uh, when, when he wasn't dealing in Chicago Heights when Capone came along. Lou, the last question we always ask the guests on this podcast are: What are two books that have been important to you as a person, and why? Yeah, well, I think uh, first of all, thank you, George. And, and George, I think I. I I, in my in my message to you, I said these are hard books. I didn't mean they're hard to read. I meant they're hard to think of two books <laughs> that had an impact upon one's life because you think of all the things that um, I think one of them is that, as I suggested, that 
that Street Corner Society. It was written by a man, William Foote White, and he, he looked at the north end of Boston, and he, he, he looked at the Italian section of the north end of Boston, and in his study, he said, these people aren't disorganized, they aren't all running around, there's not chaos, that the north end of Boston had a different type of social organization, a different type of culture, a different way of looking at the world than the larger American society. And so his book sort of sent a spark in me that the Chicago Heights group and Chicago Heights overall wasn't a, an inferior version of the largest, the mainstream society was. It was a different way of organizing in terms of community and, and ethnicity and the like. And so William Foote White's book, studying that North End, of, Italian sect, North End of Boston, sort of struck me. Uh, and I recognized my community, Chicago Heights, in this academic work that was written, you know, so many years ago. So that was one book. And then the, and that second book I sort of alluded to already was this book written by a sociologist named C. Wright Mills. And he he coined the term the sociological imagination. And basically it's the idea that um, one's, like I said, one's own life can be seen, can be seen as somehow as, as the intersection of one's own personal history and biography. George, your, your biography is different than my biography um, and it's different than other people's biography. So your decisions are, are in your, what you do and how you've been so successful in what you do is in some ways a consequence of your own history, your own family, your own growing up. But it's also a function of the fact that you grew up in ways similar to me, I take it, and that you grew up in the Chicago Heights context, you grew up in certain sort of, in certain sort of social uh, location in terms of social class and in terms of race, which has impacted the decisions that you make. And so that's what C. Wright Mills, the sociological emanation, tries to get us to see, and I try to get my students to see, is that the decisions going forward are a combination of both those things. And unless you see both, then you don't have the total picture. And so that has always been a touchstone for me in terms of how I try to go ahead. My life is, I make decisions, certainly, and I have responsibility for making decisions, but it's also it's also contoured by things that are beyond my own, I should say, control or understanding until I see this bigger picture. Lou, if somebody wanted to, to learn more about the book or connect, you, connect with you on the internet, how would they find you? Uh, certainly at North Central College. Um, and my, um, my uh, email is lcorsino, L-C-O-R-S-I-N-O, at n-o-c-t-r-l dot e-d-u Lou Corsino thanks so much for coming on the podcast George I appreciate what you do I appreciate the time to talk thanks for coming on take care okay George help George stay on the Chicago Heights City Council go and donate today at tinyurl.com slash aldermangeorge2023. Begin to transform your life and work towards inner peace with expert psychotherapy. At True Heights Treatment, our experienced therapists provide personalized, compassionate care to help you overcome life's challenges and reach your goals. 
Whether you're struggling with depression, anxiety, relationship issues, or other mental health concerns, our team is here to support you. With a warm and welcoming in-person and virtual office atmosphere and a commitment to person-centered and evidence-based treatments, we are dedicated to helping you address your life's challenges. Contact us now to schedule your first session at 708-248-7039 or online at trueheightstx.com. Book your appointment today and start your journey towards a happier, healthier life. Need more George? Like his pages on Facebook. Friends of George Brassy PAC, Fifth Ward Business Alliance, Chicago Heights Bicycle and Pedestrian Resource Center, and the George Brassy Podcast. Thank you.